Elis moved to London from Wigan in 2000 and never looked back. A street artist known for his stencils and graphic imagery, he found himself at the heart of a growing movement. Embedding himself onto the street art scene, his work became noticed and popular. Speaking to Art Related Noise, Elis tells us about those early days, releasing his first print with Banksy, and how positivity is such an important element in the work that he does today. This is Art Related Noise. We started experimenting with painting. There's so many avenues of art. We're surrounded by images. Just being lost in this sea of possibility. Announcing that I was going to be an artist. It brings the work I do alive even more. They could be part of this work as well. Everyone's got their own personal connection to something. Hi Lee, thanks for talking to Art Related Noise. Thanks for coming Stuart, good to see you. It's good to see you. Um, I suppose first of all people know your work and they'll know you as Elis. So yeah. where does the name Elis come from? Uh, it came from, it was an old ex-girlfriend of mine who first came up with it. At the time I'd kind of just started painting on the street but I was just using my initials like this little LP. I was known for when I'm quite tall, quite skinny. I got quite sharp teeth, pointy teeth, and I would often wear all black, you know, kind of a bit of a closet goth into metal and stuff. And she started calling me Eel Boy. Right, right. Because I resembled it. I was just this long, black, pointy toothed creature. <laughs> um, bit of a cave dweller. Right. <laughs> You're painting a real great, good picture of you in your youth at the well, this, moment. This is it, yeah. And then. Um, so she was calling me Eel Boy, and then one day just Elis came out of that. My mind was kind of thinking, you know, about trying to get some kind of name, and instantly I was like, that's it. That, that, that is it, that'll do. It doesn't mean anything to anyone. It, do you know what I mean? It's just not really a word. And that, that was it. I just started using it from there. Well, as simple so, as that. Yeah, exactly. A lot of people think it's Lee backwards. Right. That's the general thing. And then, of course, I've got to go into this whole story of this long, skinny, Closet goth with sharp teeth, and, and then people just look at you like you're mental. <laughs> <laughs> and when was that then? Was that was that back in? Because you, you're you're a northern lad uh, originally from from Wigan. Was that from right. from back in those days? That no, it stems no. From? This is when I kind of I, I lived in London for a little while. You're probably looking at about 2002, 2003, 2002. So I moved to London in 2000 after doing my degree up in Blackpool. I'm from Wigan originally. So I moved from Wigan to Blackpool, did my graphic design degree there, which was three years. And then like a big group of us kind of descended to London, which was just brilliant. And then I lived there for, I gave myself a 10 year limit. And I think I moved out just before the start of my 10th year. So yeah, I moved in 2000, just as this, the kind of street art scene was quite embryonic in a mm. way. Stickers were a big thing, wheat pastes, a lot of hand-drawn, illustrative kind of pieces were around. Stencils as well, obviously. Banksy wasn't really in the press very much, if at all. And then you had people like Mysterious Al and D-Face and Dave the Chimp and PMH and the Finders Keepers. They were doing stuff around. Um, I ended up around kind of the Shoreditch area after a little while. And that's kind of, that was the hub really. That's where a lot of the street art was, you know what I mean? It was mm. kind of Brick Lane and Shoreditch and Old Street all around there. Ben was painting his kind of letters around there. Benign. Yeah. And yeah, I'd, I'd never seen anything like that before. So you weren't aware of that then? 
No, it was a complete eye-opener. No, no, there was just nothing like that up north at all. I'm sure there is now, but certainly back, you know, when I was growing up and, and even like going to do my degree, um, I graduated in 2000 to move straight to London. There was nothing. And when I moved to London, you started seeing all this stuff. It really right. was just like, what is this? Do you know what I mean? It was just like, this is great. Because, you know, I always had a sketchbook. I was always drawing. Always like kind of had weird characters on the go, and just as a kind of like outside of my day job, I needed like some kind of release of creativity and my own kind of um, expressing myself in different ways. Because you know the graphic design job wasn't always very creative, mm. cre creatively fulfilling, and I just instantly kind of caught on to it, and it just really resonated straight away. So once you you moved down to London, was it, you you was it like a a big shock to see this sort of world that you were stepping mm. into from Wigan, from Blackpool, where nothing was creatively was happening really to boom. You're yeah. at the birth of the, well, the street art movement that we know today, probably. Yeah. yeah, this is it. I lived in Dalston, kind of, well, I lived in a few houses. I had a, I had a kind of a weird flat share with Paloma Faith and a few other people, oh, wow. kind of just off Kingston Road. And it was just so creative. There were, you know, everybody was in a band. Everybody was an, an artist. Everybody was doing something outside of whatever their day hustle was. And there was such a buzz about that. And I just kind of got completely sucked into it. So I was like a real fanboy for a long time. And I would buy, I bought like the stencil art book by Tristan Manco. At the time that Banksy was releasing those, you remember the little black books that he had. So just trying to consume and learn anything that I could from, from you know, wherever I could get my hands on it. I mean, there weren't really a lot of books back then because it was such a new scene. So I was buying the stencil art book and then I discovered people like Logan Hicks and Chris Stain. So yeah, they were a big kind of inspiration back in the day as well. And I just thought this, I can do this stenciling. Like I know my way around Photoshop. I'm drawing all these characters. This is just, I know that I can be involved in this somehow. So I just taught myself to stencil. I just started kind of painting smaller pieces on paper for friends, like little fun portraits and stuff. And they went down really well. And then it's just something that I just seem to be naturally quite good at. So I painted more and more and it got to the point where I had all these paintings and didn't, I wasn't confident enough to go to a gallery. I mean, they weren't that good. So I went and um, I opened like a small kind of shop stroke market stall in Camden Market and just filled it with all these paintings that I was doing and buying like cheap canvas from Atlantis Art Supplies. It's like the kind of famous art shop down, down that way. And so I would paint, I would do my graphic design job through the day. I would go home at night, work on new paintings and paint almost every night. And then I'd work in the shop on Saturday and Sunday and sell everything that I'd painted through the week. And then I started kind of my own t-shirt label. Well, I think that's a bit grand, really. Mm. I, I printed t-shirts. <laughs> right. Oh, I didn't print them myself. I had t-shirts printed of like the kind of similar designs. And this is when Shatter was first kind of born. I was painting it out on the streets. Originally, it was just a nice t-shirt idea that I had kind of kicking around in my sketchbooks. And I thought, well, I'll try stenciling it as well and see... And that was one of the first stencils, really, that I did. And what's this? The shout out. The shout at. The shout at. So the girl kind of pulling the the at at piece, which was like the the piece that Got started it. everything. Yeah. So it started as a t-shirt design, really. And I had it on t-shirts in my stall in Camden, and I started painting it on canvases. And then we had the stencil revolution website. I don't know if you remember that, which was like this kind of great community of of stencil artists worldwide again, before the scene really exploded. What sort of year was, would this have been? I reckon this was probably two, yeah, two, 2002, three. Right. So you could, you know, it was kind of like a flicker in a way, but for stencil art, you know, and you could leave comments and encourage people and give, you know, little critiques and this kind of thing. 
And everybody was on there, like, you know, all the people that, that kind of, I know, I'm pretty, pretty sure like Snick was on there and Fark and, you know, a lot of the kind of British stencil artists were definitely involved. And that was kind of like a start. And then you would, you, you know, you, you would upload an image of a photograph of whatever you'd painted on the street. And then, it, you, you know, I guess it's like an Instagram in a way, but online, you know, you'd get all these comments and likes, that kind of thing. And you'd be encouraged to do more. And it was just a real nice community feel. And it's long gone now, but it, at the start of a scene, it really was like a massive, it was a cornerstone of, of everything. For me, anyway, it was, you know, you'd, you'd, you know you'd, you'd open your little profile and you'd upload your photographs and you'd check in and see what else, what everyone else was doing. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so yeah, that was probably about 2002, 2003, I think. So where did the first idea to, to focus on stencils come from? You know, when you, you, you'd moved down to East London and what was it that you saw on the scene that said to you, okay, I'm gonna give stenciling a go, I'm gonna really try this. I guess it was originally seeing Banksy's stuff around East London and seeing his paintings like in the Dragon Bar, the famous Dragon Bar. And just, again, really resonating with me. I, th I don't think it was until I went to the first Santa's Ghetto, which I think was on Carnaby Street, 2004, the first one. Possibly. So I went in there, saw the Banksy work on prints and like the kind of the paintings they had and Jamie Hewlett stuff. Who else was there? Was Mikalev involved then? I can't remember. Um, anyway, it was mainly Banksy and Jamie Hewlett that kind of resonated the most. Instantly, obviously, kind of, I spent the last few years seeing all the stuff on the streets and all of a sudden, that, you know, it had been translated onto paper and been like framed and on a wall. And I just thought that was just the coolest thing. They just looked great. And I, and I instantly wanted to know more about screen printing as a process because that was something I knew nothing about. And obviously at the time, like I said, I was painting these kind of small cheap canvases. And then instantly I had something to aim for in terms of quality and a level of success in, in a way. I just instantly was like, right, I, I need to be involved in this. And I walked out of that show onto Carnaby Street. And it just, that, that like however long I was in that hour just changed everything. It just really cemented, like it just tied everything together. I went from being like a fanboy, just wandering around the streets, taking photographs of everything and documenting it myself, to all of a sudden, okay, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm tinkering with it as a hobby. I need to be involved on a deeper level. And that's when, um, so that went 2004. Yeah, and then it got to, yeah, so I practiced and practiced, painted more on the streets, then we got to 2006 was when I first did my, uh, my first release with Pictures on Walls. Right. After Benign and Banksy apparently had seen my Shattat stencils around the area. And I emailed them with the image and just said, um, you know, I've got this image. <coughs> I saw your Santa's Ghetto show. I've seen the screen prints. I really want to be involved. Would you be interested in printing this image? And I think it was Ayn who replied and said, yes, well, you know, myself and Banksy have seen these around. We really like them. Um, come on in and have a chat, which I did. Um, after picking myself up off the floor, and went in there and yeah, and we did, uh, I think we released five colors, was it four? Each one was like an addition of 200 and everyone sold out. Like super record time, I think the first, was it the first one? Even broke Banksy's record for the fastest selling print for the wow. company at the time, which led to a little email kind of 
back and forth with me and him of a little kind of bit of a piss take, which I wish I'd have printed and kept, but I didn't. And then I was in the, the next Santa's ghetto from that point. Wow, so that, that Shatat image that you devised, so were you, were you going around stenciling that everywhere? Is that... Yes, I was, but then I also kind of thought about it quite strategically. I was painting it, but then after I left the Santa's ghetto in 2004, and I, and I learned about pictures on walls, because um, they weren't really in my radar before then, I found out where they were, and then I just targeted closer to that area with what I was painting in the hopes that they would see it, and they did see it. And, and they did, so that must be nice. Yeah, yeah you, got, you got the, yeah, I've seen that, that piece on the, yeah, I know that image. Yeah. From Banksy and I. Yeah, so the, yeah, yeah, so, the, yeah, so the plan worked, the strategy worked from, from that perspective, so I was really happy with that. And it was just amazing to, to go into this, like, magician's lair, like, I don't know, like a wizard's cave of, you know, Ein's there printing, you know, you've got Paul Insect hanging around, and you've got all this amazing artwork on the walls, and, Prince drawing in the rack, and all of a sudden, I was on the inside watching work drying that I'd been coveting over and not been able to afford, and was a, a massive fan of. I was, I was on the other side of the wall. I was in the door. You like know. the Aladdin's cave. Yes, that's exactly house. what I was. Yeah, the analogy I was thinking. And fuck yeah, it was so exciting. It, it, and, it, and that just that excitement of just having that door opened just a little bit just kind of really spurred me on and created more excitement and just kind of sucked me in deeper and deeper. So I just started really working on my style more, painting more, sending emails out, trying to get involved in group exhibitions and that kind of thing. And then everything just kind of went from there. It was just that first print edition in 2006 and then it hasn't stopped since since then really and I guess that's a, a strange thing as well because people I kind of emerged onto the scene with this image that did really well sold out straight away and then I was a name on a list of names that people knew and, and people just assumed that you're an artist you know what you're doing you've been around for a while when in fact not that I know what I'm doing now but I was just, I was in a day job as a, as a kind of online media designer. It was pretty much, it was my first ever screen print. My first like, real kind of proper artwork in a way. There were so many firsts in that screen print release. And so for it to do so well was, was just such a huge surprise. But I think a lot of it as well, I, I owe to, you know, it was the right time, the right place. It really was such a kind of golden time for, for print collectors and for pictures on walls and for the street art scene in general. Um, I think that if I'd have released the same image now, you know, I think the chances of it doing as good, or if I was at that stage of my career now, you know, whether it would have snowballed to, to the same extent, I don't know. I doubt that. Sounds think, like you caught a, a bit of a wave at that absolutely. time. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think that, yeah, just such, such a huge dollop of luck and, and, and right time, right place. And I think that is just so much of, of everything. You know what I mean? You, just knowing the right people, being in the right town, the right place. You know, you can, be, you can be an incredible artist and be really, really talented, but you might never, ever get the break that you need because of the location that you're in or, well, I don't know, a whole host of reasons, I guess. But um, I was just very, very lucky, very lucky. When you look at Shoreditch now and you look at some of the places that you've mentioned, uh, the Dragon Bar, yeah. uh, which is long since gone, oh, but would, would have been an absolute hub back then. Yes. Recently, yeah, yeah. the foundry got demolished. Yeah, That's yeah. no more. And yeah. I, I don't know if you, you were one of the 2,000 odd artists that ever had a show in there, but that was a hub as well. No, I don't think I was. I don't um, think I showed there, no. But these places, you know what I mean? They, they, they were symbolic, weren't they, of, oh, yeah. a, of a particular time? And, and now we see lots of development yeah. and stuff. What do you, what do you, what's your views on, on that, you know, this, this changing dynamic that we see in places like Shoreditch? And... 
Well, it's a shame because it's, you know, there was so much cultural history there that's now just been completely wiped out for high-end flats, for bankers to live in, <coughs> apartments, inner-city apartments and, and all this. Tragic, you know, I mean, it's, it's just a natural progress. I mean, they're not going to, you know, wherever there's money to be made, people will do everything they can to make it. And you're never, never going to stop that. So there's no point crying into your tea about it because that's, that's just the way of the world, isn't it? Mm. But it is a shame. And it is, but it's, you know, I think it's something like the street art scene in Shoreditch, it was so well documented. You know, the people who were involved and the people who were big fans, it was something that really brought a lot of people together. You know what I mean? There was such a huge shared commonality there and shared interests that certainly for me was, was a new thing. It was something that I hadn't really experienced before. So it's not something that will be forgotten, but yeah, it was a real golden age. And just, yeah, it's, it's really sad to think that those buildings just aren't there, you know, but then... All around the world, you know, all the, all the amazing buildings that have disappeared, nightclubs, CBGBs, you know, all these things that are just drenched in cultural gold yes. and people don't have access to them unless you live in the flat that's been converted into and it's something that you can brag about at the next yeah. cocktail party. <laughs> cultural memory is quite important, isn't it? With this I think sort of so. Thing. And we can talk yeah. about it now, but you know, wandering around the streets, sometimes you, you've got to use your imagination quite a lot to think, well, here... A lot of stuff happened that's yes. informed quite yes. a big movement. This is it, yeah, exactly. But uh, but again, you know, it's it, it was so well documented, yeah. and at least we have that. You know, at least everyone has access to to decent cameras and to all kinds of other media now that can be uploaded on online and, and preserved. Whereas there would have been a time and a place where you know that wouldn't have been possible back in the days of, of film camera before the internet. You know, that something like that really wouldn't have been documented as as in depth. But then again, I don't know, maybe it would have been. I mean, look at, you know, Subway Art and, you know, Martha Cooper, people like that. I mean, God, what a, an amazingly documented art scene that obviously has kind of went on to birth everything that we, we know now. But I think it's great now that people can take documenting into their own hands and everyone's got the technology to, you know, snap away. And sorry, I've kind of gone on a bit of a ramble there. <laughs> it's I, all right. I've lost my own train of thought <laughs> with that one. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about your inspirations now. So where yeah. are you now with your art and, and sort of what, um, what makes you tick, if you like, with what you do these mm. days? Same thing that always has, really. You know, I try and keep my inspirations as, as, as wide as possible. Well, I'm looking at you because we're in your, your fantastic <coughs> studio here mm. and there's a, some classic film posters here. Yes, uh, yes. Horror films. Yeah, I'm it big into horror films. Horror films, horror books. I mean, you know, they always say you shouldn't really do this, but about 90% of everything I read fiction-wise is kind of horror, or weird, you know, horror and weird fiction, as it's known. Um, and I love horror films and that has creeped in from time to time. You know, you get this idea and you can't stop thinking about it until it's become realised and it's your own little homage to whatever film or, you know. But yeah, films, horror films, science fiction. I love to read. I read a lot. I read a lot of fiction. I read a lot of non-fiction. I try and keep that as varied as possible. You know, history, science, just as wide ranging as I can possibly keep it. I'm just generally curious about most things and I can, my brain really flits around an awful lot so I can be, I can be really really intensely interested in an extremely bizarre topic and then it'll just disappear and then I'll be on to the next thing and the next thing. Will that interest ever uh, translate into your work? Would you be intensely interested and think, right, okay, uh, I've got to, got to put this down on paper, I've got to do something with this? Yeah, I think like the paper cutting, you know, when I kind of, I've you know, dabbled in paper cutting before, that was like a medium that I started reading about and you know, that had its like a little kind of boost a few years ago, people like Rob Ryan, a lot of craft 
crafty people out there turned to paper cutting. It did, did become a bit of a fashion thing. And is paper cutting where you got layer and layer and layer of Well, paper? it could either. I mean, you can, you know, paper cutting either, you know, images from a single sheet. Again, people like Rob Ryan or a good friend of mine, Ben Southern, who's very, very good. Or, you know, more the thing that I did, I, I developed it a little more and I kind of did these like 3D paper cuts where I um, built a lot of depth. Paper is just so nice to work with. You know, you can sit at a table, you can cut it by hand very easily. It's very tactile. Obviously, cutting stencils by hand and painting by hand and all that kind of stuff, you know, is nice. But there's something about working with paper and just having being sat at a desk and having a pile of paper in front of you and cutting various shapes, painting them, gluing them together, having something in your hand that you can rotate and look at in three dimensions and then stick it down and You've cut little holes in and you've spaced, you've used little foam spacers so you can see underneath little bits and you can use that to your advantage and you can create real shadows instead of painting shadows and you know, so that's, I really got into that for a while. What about um, your street artwork? Every now and again you'll, you'll come out and you'll do a, a, a big piece, you know, yeah. a big spectacular piece, yeah. and, but it seems to be that it's a, it is a set piece moment when you do that mm. these days. Yeah. Can you tell me something more about yeah, street art stuff at the moment? Uh, it's not something that I've... I'm doing a lot of, or I haven't done a lot of really for a while now. My, my focus seemed to shift to more studio-based stuff. But uh, it's something that I'm getting back into. I, mean, I painted a mural in Brighton not that long ago. This the, is the Alice, the in, Alice Wonderland. in Wonderland. Yeah, which I really, really loved. Painted that with my friend Andy, who's the artist touch. He gave me a hand on that. And then obviously there's the mural in Walthamstow, which I had a blast painting and, and really, really happy with how that came out. And that kind of seemed to go down well with people and resonate. So it's, yeah, it's going back to the horror thing for a second. Making art like that was such a personal kind of egotistical, I'm doing this for me. No one else is probably going to like it. It's still not going to sell. And a lot of it didn't sell really, but it was, it was pleasing to do. And it, you know, it was, you know, ticked off a few creative boxes for me, but it was so hard to sell. And now over the last I don't know, a few months or so, I've, I've just been doing a lot of kind of like deep thinking on where the work should be going in terms of murals and, and painting and stuff and how just wanting to create much more value in what I do, being more responsible with the work that I put out there and just want to make sure that everything that I do is resonating with people as, as much as, but not resonating with absolutely everyone. You know, the work that I do isn't, isn't for everyone. And I totally accept that, but just creating real positive value for the people who are on board and who do like the work and, and keeping things positive. You know, I'm sure every now and again, like things might take a slightly darker turn because I, I, I just inherently have that in me. You know what I mean? I can't shake that off. But just wanting to promote positivity, certainly myself, I can be quite a negative person. It's kind of like a bit of a um, therapy for me, really, keeping things positive and upbeat. And I think painting murals, for me, it's such a joyous thing to do. It's such an amazing experience, especially if you're painting it with, with a good friend. All these memories are created on the week that you're spending painting that wall. And if you're painting something that's full of colour and has a positive uh, message, it does resonate with people and you get all these like lovely messages from the public who say, oh, we walk past this, you know, I walk my son past this every day on the way to school and it's, because, you know, we know it as our this or our that and, you know, we've called her this or we've called her that. And it's just like hearing those stories. I'm really hearing that all of a sudden before I was like, oh, that's nice, thank you, that's nice, thank you. And I was like, well, hang on a minute, this is, there's really something happening here that I want to kind of explore more and dive into. Instead of like producing all this stuff that, that only I'm into, the slightly more darker stuff, you know, I do have the ability to create these more positive, uplifting, brighter pieces that are bringing positivity to other people. They're becoming part of the community in yes. some way. Definitely, yeah, yeah, and also, you know, the, the, the screen prints, you know, if someone's going to buy something and they bring it into the home or they commission a painting and, 
all kinds of stories I get from people who are just so appreciative of whatever the positive message is that they get from a piece. And you know, if someone's going to give me two, three hundred pounds to, to buy a print and then they're going to spend another 150 quid on framing it and then they hang it in their front room and that family lives with that piece of art, like I still really, really struggle to get my head around that. It's so humbling. I really do have to pinch myself a lot of the time and I, and I, I am really focusing on that now and it's something that's really, really dawned on me and I've been thinking a lot over the past few months of this you know, there's a responsibility there to, you know, if you have a, a talent to, you know, using it for the for the greater good without getting too cheesy with it, you know, there's, you know, what can I do to make more of a, of a positive impact? And finding that balance of doing something that's resonating with me, but also doing something that's resonating with the public or the people who collect my work as well. Because there's a, there's a definite middle ground there. It's not just, you know, oh, what's sold? Let's just do more of that. You know, a lot of people, like, there's this kind of term of oh, the kids in rainbows. Oh, we just does the kids in rainbows. Which is crazy. If you think, I mean, I've been painting since 2003. I don't know how many paintings I've done in that time. There's only about four that really fall into that category. When people are using that term, oh, he's just cashing in. It's another kids in rainbows thing. It's like, well, hang on. There's a lot of other stuff out there. You know, you can't just take four pieces and say, that's all I do. Because there's an awful, awful the big back catalogue of stuff there. But it's, it's, it's those pieces that really resonate. And I keep banging on about this resonating, but it, you know, it's people just latch onto that. And so now I'm trying to work in, in a direction where I'm exploring that more, or exploring more of just the emotive, the emotions that are coming out of these pieces, the emotional value that it gives to other people, as well as myself, keeping myself uplifted. What's the positive message here that I'm trying to explore and keeping it fresh in my mind to help me overcome my own negativities of various things. It sounds like there's some sort of, sort of personal win-win here. So if it gives you energy and it gives you joy to paint it. Mm, yeah, it's very cathartic kind of, you know, when I'm painting like the like darker pieces, I do kind of get into a little bit of a rabbit hole of, you know, I'll, I'll, make, I'll make her look like this and I'll add this and I don't care what people think because that's what I want to do because it's dark and, and, it, and like the, the, the teen goth comes out of me of, you know what I mean? It's, and it's so hard for me to like ignore that. And I'm sure there are channels out there for me to, to explore more of that kind of thing. But I think now, well, certainly at the minute, my mindset is what can I do to help? What can I do for you, for the, like the people who are buying my work? What can I do that is cathartic for me that I'm enjoying but is for you because I mean at the end of the day I'm running a business it's you know what I mean it's I'm a professional I turn up to work every day at half past eight in the morning I leave at five I do that five days a week sometimes six not very often and it's I come in whether I'm inspired to come in or not because this is this is my office this is the job I was brought up with that work ethic you know my dad always drilled that into me of and the second I was old enough to have a job, my dad made sure I had a job. And I've always had a job. I've always had at least one job. I've had multiple jobs running at the same time. And it's just something that's kind of really instilled in me to turn up, do the work. You know, if I'm running a business, then I'm providing something for someone, hopefully. But the person that buys the work is getting the <coughs> that reward of this great piece of art on the wall. Yes, which is what yes, you were saying earlier. Exactly, yeah. So it's just, you know... I come in and I'm trying to now run, just run the studio as a business. You know, all the people who have, have, have supported me over the years and who love certain pieces of work and spend all this money, they're the reason that I'm lucky enough to be able to come in here and do this every day. I don't answer to anyone. If I didn't turn up to work today, if I didn't do what I do, um, what would be missing from people's lives or the world? You know, what, what, what am I leaving behind? You know, how am, I, how am I finishing every day 
leaving some kind of positive mark, adding something to someone's life in some way on a daily basis. And that's what I'm trying to keep at the front of my mind now. It sounds like quite a positive way of looking at the world. Trying, yeah, definitely trying. I mean, it's so hard to get sucked down a negative rabbit hole these days, politically, environmentally, you know, places are shit show all over the world. It's, it, it's depressing. And I want to counteract that with humour and what can, you know, I'm not really a political artist. I'm not clever enough to do that. I don't have enough of a um, grasp of the political landscape to um, inject that into the work that I do. So it's like, well, what am I good at? And I know that I'm, I'm good at making people laugh. I'm really good at being silly. I don't mind making a fool of myself to get a cheap laugh. You know what I mean? I know that I can produce things that, that can uplift people and that can brighten someone's day with the choice of colours or the positive message that I'm trying to put in something. And I think that's, that's where I fit. You know, I think trying to recognise what my skills are and, and using those to, to the best of my ability, um, whilst it being cathartic and rewarding and, and therapeutic to myself at the same time. Elis, thanks for talking to Art Related Noise. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Stuart. Thank you.